gastroenterologist knows there's a lot of variability there's a lot there's a lot of factors that affect your digestion so if you're able to capture more data you should be able to do a better diagnosis Angus, uh, you are the uh, CEO and founder of Food Marble, which is a breath analyzing device that I'm excited to learn about. Uh, I warmly welcome you to the Scope Forward show. Thanks very much, Praveen. I've always loved the Scope Forward show. It's just really informative and uh, just delighted to be invited. Angus, you are a PhD in uh, engineering in a completely different field. Uh, and you're a data scientist. How does somebody with your background get into a field like gastroenterology? <laughs> it's a good question. It was actually my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, she has IBS and um, she was struggling. She was having a really difficult time. She'd been to different types of clinicians between primary care. Uh, she'd been to a number of gastroenterologists. She tried enough medications. She, of course, had a number of procedures. And so they didn't find anything that they were very worried about. So kind of a really common story where people end up with a, a diagnosis of IBS. And um, I just started doing some research to see because I, I had access to the literature. So at that time, breath analysis had been used for quite some time, these sort of large benchtop devices. Um, but I could see the low FODMAP diet was emerging from the literature. And, and this was kind of a, an approach where if you can identify which foods ferment rapidly into gases in the gut and reduce down the consumption of those foods, that you could feel a lot better. And it was remarkable for me because I could see that in, in those early trials of the low FODMAP diet, and you know, as many as three and four people were seeing significant improvement, people at least are you know, tend to feel better. So they were using breath analysis in, in that research. So it kind of triggered me to, to think, okay, could I build one of these devices for Grace? And when she'd eat it, um, she'd see sig sometimes very significant rises in the breath hydrogen be measured. That was quite a good signal in terms of maybe this food should limit in her diet. It's a pretty cool way if she was able to start personalizing what she could and couldn't eat. And um, yeah, I guess that was sort of the inspiration for for what we're doing today. That's an amazing uh, backstory. Uh, so how did you get started? So I started working on the original prototypes back in 2014. The accelerator program was in at the start of 2016. So we spent a couple of years developing the device and just getting it up to a level where it was performing really well, because it is really challenging to measure these breath gases at the sort of concentration levels we need to measure them at on the breath. So yeah, there was a lot of product development that went in and just even learning from like users using the device, giving feedback, letting us know, and kind of us being able to build up that app guided process as well with our users. I mean, that, that took a while, but it's really beneficial for us, I think. From my understanding, uh, why did you choose to focus on hydrogen as a gas, like for the layperson, if you can explain uh, you know, yeah. why, why hydrogen in, in particular? 
Yeah, so there's a few gases that are relevant on the breath. Um, and so hydrogen is probably the primary gas. So whenever if you eat something, essentially it's not absorbed or it's not fully digested and it gets as far as uh, microbes that can break it down in the gut. So that might be the small intestine, but usually the large intestine. Um, if, so if you get that undigested food to that point, it starts to be fermented by the bacteria or the different microbes in the gut. And that's producing hydrogen carbon dioxide and lots of other different metabolites. So hydrogen is the kind of the primary gas that's produced. Some of the hydrogen can be turned into methane, which is another gas that's often present on the breath. Some of it can be turned into hydrogen sulfide as well. So there is a couple of other gases on there. But for our first generation device, we wanted to measure hydrogen because first of all, it, it is the main gas of interest, but then also when it comes to people being able to identify what foods they can and can't eat, hydrogen is very responsive to the food that people are eating. So if, if they're not digesting the food effectively, you'll often see very significant increases in hydrogen levels. And, and, and if you're not seeing it, that's a good indicator that this food might be actually okay for the person. So that was the first one. But we, in our second generation device, we are measuring methane and we should be able to release an update on that device where we're also measuring hydrogen sulfide on the breath. So we have the, in our sensing array, we have the capability to measure all three gases in our second generation device. What is in the device that listens to the signal of hydrogen? How exactly, you know, does it sense yeah. hydrogen? Yeah, so inside the device, there's a sensing canal. So the person is exhaling into the device and there's a sensing array inside of there, so multiple sensors, which are measuring um, if, if effectively the, it does a signal that's generated by the sensors. It, it's measuring the electrical resistance of cross the sensors. So whenever the molecule of interest comes in contact with the sensor, it kind of temporarily attaches to the sensor and then you kind of reverse it, it kind of detaches again. So you're having all of these reactions happening on the surfaces of the sensors while they're exposed to the to the sensors. And uh, yeah, so we get a signal then. And so in effect, we're getting all like multiple signals that are coming from the sensing array. And then there's all sorts of different kind of models we're using to be able to translate that into concentration levels that we can show to the clinician and show to the patient. Ingus, I'd love to see the device if you have it with you. You know, I'd love to see how it looks and if you can show it to us. Yeah, sure. So I've actually got this is actually the second generation medical device, which is coming up. So this is Medair 2. So mm -hmm. if you can see here. So this is a mouthpiece at the front, which the you can click off and you can you can wash. Um there's a this is the on-off button at the top. Mm -hmm. And so you can see you can see the canal here. So you're breathing in here, and the breath comes out the other end. And yeah, it's a and you can see as well. There's a USB port on the side, and so that's for charging the battery. And uh, it communicates via Bluetooth. How's the? Yeah, exactly. So it communicates with the phone over Bluetooth, and then the readings can be upload. They're uploaded to excuse me our cloud servers. So then the clinician is able to see the results through their dashboard at that point. Sounds so fascinating. Now, 
Can you share some numbers? How far have you come? Yeah, so we've sold over 30,000 devices um, so far. So most of those are direct-to-consumer. So initially, we, st like we started offering the device direct-to-consumer at the end of 2018 uh, through our website. More recently, so in the, in the middle of last year, we started selling a medical. So our first medical device, it's an FDA class one device, which we call MedAir. So that's now available in the U.S., and um, yeah, in, in terms of other numbers, we're 25 people based over in Dublin, but we're often in the US. We've, uh, we've raised over $6 million of, of VC funding. Um, and yeah, we, we just, like, we, we've seen a steady growth. So last year, there was a, we saw our sales double compared to the previous year. And again, this year, we're seeing really good growth as well. So there's certainly a, a lot of interest from consumers and, uh, and also from clinicians. And often what happens is a consumer buys a device, they're gathering data, and they come into their, their gastroenterologist. And probably many of the people on the show might have had this experience. And so, what you know, I guess about a year ago or so, we decided, okay, we need to be able to build a system where like, we can provide a dashboard to the clinicians to see the results. And also, we were making it possible, like, by having a medical device, the clinician can use that. And, you know, it's it, from, from a kind of ancillary revenue point of view, it's something that they can, you know, add to their practice and, uh, it, you know, it can, can be a, a source of revenue as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How could a clinician earn money by partnering with you and how could it be a source of revenue for them? Yeah, so basically the way we do it is that if a clinician gets set up with us, it, it's then possible for them to order devices that get sent to their patients. Uh, so we can send them directly or we, we can send them a bulk number of units that they can have to hand and they can, because sometimes the clinician wants to you know, be able to give the device directly to the patient if they're coming into their office. Um, and so, and so in, in this instance, then the, the clinician is also able to avail of reimbursement. So there's, there's reimbursement for the breath tests, uh, for, for breath tests of, that have been done traditionally. So it's the same reimbursement codes. And, um, you know, something we're also doing more and more is where the device is being used from a, from a remote physiologic monitoring perspective. So that's sort of RPM idea is something that's getting increasingly, like, because these are conditions um, like IBS, SIBO, functional constipation, these are conditions where it really makes sense to track the patient over a period of time. So clinically, if you're measuring, um, for example, for functional constipation, measuring methane levels on the breath is very relevant because constipation tends to correlate with methane levels uh, in, in a lot of patients. Uh, but yeah, so there's different models that can be applied and it really depends on what uh, what the clinician wants to do but yeah so they but fundamentally there's a dashboard for the clinician to be able to review the results from the from the patient and so we can guide the, the actual patient through the procedure of doing breath tests so that could be SIBO breath tests or tests for different food intolerances or as I said remote monitoring so we keep it really easy for the clinician and for staff to be able to set up patients and to be able to interact with the patient it just makes it a lot easier for a clinician to be able to do breath testing uh, you know and facilitate that from the home.
does this come under the same category as other remote patient monitoring devices such as a blood pressure cuff or you know you measure diabetes and you send that to the clinician would it come under the same category yeah exactly so so from a reimbursement perspective it's the exact same yeah. codes yeah from, it's a, also, from a reimbursement standpoint yeah and and, and also it, it's it's a very similar concept as well so you're tracking data that's relevant to the course of treatment so um, like for example if, if a patient so initially they might be diagnosed the gi might uh, diagnose them with SIBO so if they did a you know conventional SIBO breath test which is a kind of a fasting morning breath test um, and that could be done remotely using our device if they uh, determine that okay this patient appears to have SIBO and they you know in most cases they proceed to treating with rifaximin which is an antibiotic um, like during the course of treatment and after treatment they're able to they're able to monitor the levels of hydrogen and methane in the patient and that's really relevant because well first of all you want to see did the, you know did the treatment work and you know is another course required but then also after the patient has been tre treated successfully in about half the cases you know the SIBO tends to return so you know for for some clinicians they might be interested in being able to monitor uh, monitor the patient to see do the symptoms return do they need to do another uh, course of treatment or you know what's the best next approach for this patient because it's sort of for a lot of these conditions you know you need to try different things so you you might like in SIBO for example you know you you, you want to identify what is the underlying cause and and what can you know, what can bring the patient to a resolution because you might be testing for SIBO and you clear it with antibiotics. If you don't identify and resolve the underlying cause, they may still uh, continue to have symptoms. So, you, for example, you might have um, where a patient has very slow motility, so the food is passing very slowly through the gut, and sometimes maybe using a prokinetic agent or something like that might be beneficial. But if you're able to track uh, their fermentation levels in real time over a period of time, that could be really beneficial in terms of treatment. I'm really curious about that. So do you write into the EHR? I'm getting into a little bit of detail now, but do you, uh, how does a clinician, I think what I'm trying to figure out are two things. One is from your end, one is from a clinician's end. If you're providing a dashboard or uh, if you're writing, say, let's say, into the EHR, whatever, how can I get a longitudinal view of a patient's condition? One. Uh, second is, how can I get a population view? If 30,000 people have used the device, what have you learned from it? Uh, you know, these are two yeah. questions mixed into one. They're both really good questions. So first of all, from the perspective of how does the clinician monitor the results, so in the dashboard, they can see charts of the patient's data over time. So they could be looking at their breath readings. They could be looking at their intake of fermentable carbohydrates. So what the patient has eaten. Uh, they could be looking at their, their symptom levels. Stool tracking can be very relevant, especially if you're, you're talking about functional constipation or, or IBS. Um, so they can see that data over time and they can look at it just at a, a specific day, or they can look at, you know, over a week or a month or over a longer period of time. And we also try and make it possible. You can also see the trend in the data. So 
we try and make it easy for the GI to see whether the levels are, are tend to be going down or, or maybe they've started to go up again. So there, there are some of the key things that they're looking for, but it's something we're building on all the time. So you mentioned the population level data. So something we want to get into the dashboard is where the gastroenterologist is able to compare the results of this patient against the broader population or, or you know, different, different kind of cohorts of patients. So that's something we're looking into because what we found, and which is kind of remarkable, is you know, different individuals are in terms of their breath readings. When we've, we've done clinical trials or when we've been involved in different studies, it's just a huge range in terms of people's daily and patterns and their longer term patterns. Like, so some people, their levels go up and down quite often during the day. Some people, it's a, it's a slower progression. And a lot of that seems to link to how quickly or slowly people digest food. Is there a role of stress here? I'm just curious, like, so do you see a correlation if people are more stressed, uh, does the condition flare up and do you sense it in your device? We do invite the, the patients and, and the users to be able to record their stress levels because certainly stress is a factor in, in digestion. It's something that there's probably a two-way correlation there. Your other symptoms can provoke stress and then where stress can provoke your symptoms. You know, we've definitely seen a certain amount of that in the data. Um, try and kind of provide assistance to people as well to, to be able to try and, you know, manage that side of things. And, you know, in the future, we're, we're hoping to partner with, with other app-based technologies, for example, which can help from that perspective as well. Now, you have the benefit of more than one clinical study. Isn't that right? Yeah. So it's, we've, we've done a number of studies validating the device itself. And then more recently, you know, looking at interesting ways of using the data. So coming back to the business aspect of it, are you in touch with insurance companies, what are they saying in the US? Yeah, I mean, from the business point of view, this is something definitely we want to develop because we, we haven't had any discussion so far with payers. Um, but this is an area where you've got, a, like IBS is the number one diagnosis in gastroenterology. You're looking at different cohorts of patients, like say, for example, IBS-C, which is IBS that's constipation predominant. I was looking at numbers just before the call where, you know, it, the average was an extra $4,000 per patient per year, which, you know, isn't as much as some other conditions. When you're looking at the amount of people that are affected, it becomes a very big number. It is a huge cost for payers. And we think of the different drugs that are, that are used, they can be expensive. And so I suppose from a payer perspective, we can offer a tool that can save a lot of money and because value-based care is coming and we think we're very consistent with that as well. Mm -hmm. So you've raised $6 million, you've sold 30,000 devices, and two-thirds of that is in the U.S. What happens next? Short-term and long-term, what are your growth plans? Yeah, so there's some really interesting things that we're, we're looking at with some of our research collaborators. So we're, like we're doing a clinical trial at the moment, for example, over in Johns Hopkins, and it's looking at where, where you're using breath readings instead of kind of looking purely at a single snapshot fasting morning breath test, if you're gathering data over a period of time from the home as a patient, so if you're recording your meals, you're taking breath tests just during the day. So if you're taking breath tests after you eat, well, first of all, that's you know quite convenient 
for the person because they're, they're measuring in the home uh, in a sort of a more conventional sort of way. You're getting to capture, like, how does somebody actually respond to food? When it comes to actual diagnosis and guiding the course of treatment, it becomes especially interesting because what we found in our trial is that, so, so we were looking in particular at seeing if somebody w- would respond well to Rifaxman, which is a, a drug that's uh, approved for IBSD, um, we found that this approach seemed to be much more effective uh, than the conventional test. So instead of like replacing kind of single snapshot testing with where you're gathering data over a period of time seems to be very powerful, mainly because the digestive tract, as any gastroenterologist knows, there's a lot of variability. There's a lot, there's a lot of factors that affect your digestion. So if you're able to capture more data, you should be able to do a better diagnosis. Do you see yourself branching off into other disease conditions or would you stick with IBS and similar conditions primarily? We're very much focused on disorders of the gut. Um, and we think that like you're seeing increasing evidence that where the microbiome and the gut is affecting broader health as well. So we will be very focused around it the GI tract. That's a pretty broad scope. So IBS is certainly very important to us. Um, SIBO, uh, functional constipation. These are some of the key kind of target areas. But we do think that what we're doing could be relevant in other areas as well. So we're doing a study actually um, in IBD patients, which is very interesting. And we will probably do more in, in respect of IBD. But yeah, so there's a lot more we can do because fundamentally, when you're looking at breath, it's something that can be gathered very easily. You can, ga- you can gather it over time longitudinally. You know, the actual equipment for doing it is, is accessible from a cost point of view. So we think there's a, like a lot of potential. And when you're like, like say, for example, with the trial at, at Johns Hopkins, we're applying machine learning to the data and, and then it becomes even more exciting. So yeah, I, I think that there's a broad range of things that we can do. And, uh, but yeah, our focus right now is really on somebody's kind of really common but hard to manage GI disorders. Okay. Uh, are you raising more money? Uh, what happens from a fundraising standpoint? Yes, we, yeah, we are, we're, we're doing around at the moment. And so you're very interested to speak to anyone who's investing at the early stage, really with a, a focus on U.S. investors as well, because from a healthcare perspective, our complete focus is on the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we'd love to hear from anyone who, who might be interested. Excellent. Is there anything else that you want to share before we close? I think for us, we do see a, a big gap where there's a lot of people who have some of these functional gastrointestinal disorders. Right now, there's not that much for those patients. We just want to sit in that gap and to be able to provide something that's really convenient for the gastroenterologists and their staff and something, you know, from a practical perspective can be a revenue generator also. Taking breath and these measurements, combining with, with machine learning, for example, there's just so much that can be done with that. Like looking forward, uh, we just want to keep expanding what's possible using the technology. Is there a vision that you have for the future of GI? You know, when everything happens like you think it should, uh, what does that look like? What does such a future look like? Like the way it should be uh, for patients who are coming in and, you know, it could be something like half the patients coming into gastroenterologists but have conditions that would be relevant to what we're doing. So for, for those patients coming in, if we can give them the technology where they can go home, gather data over a period of time, 
and use that to manage treatment. So for example, if that were, um, if, if they were to take over-the-counter supplements, like identifying which are helping them, if they were to take different medications, help the clinician choose which would be most beneficial, it could be just purely food-related. So deciding whether this patient is a good candidate for, for example, a low FODMAP diet or, or maybe another type of diet that might be more suitable for the patient. If you're able to guide the patient over a period of time through that process remotely, it's something that will cost a lot less money. It's something that will be much more effective for the patient and for the clinician as well, just the satisfaction of being able to treat the patient really effectively because these are really hard to manage patients because they're really complex conditions. Uh, Ingus, short. Sure. thank you so much for joining us today on the Scope Forward show. I'm excited about what you're building. I always admire and respect innovators. What you're doing is fantastic. I wish you great success, you and your team. Thank you once again. Thanks for being.